So beginning this morning, we're kind of going on this journey through the first six chapters of Paul's second letter to Corinthians. Some ask, well, why would you just go through the sixth, uh, first six? Well, there's a nice break point between six and seven. And I'm going to pull a lot of the information from seven to the end of the book into the first six. And I've kind of uh, scheduled it out. It's going to take us into the summer where it's a not logical break anyway. So that's why the first six chapters. But I wanted to try and give you a little background on like why I chose this, just as a kind of an introduction to this to the series. I, I think it addresses... Um, a polarity that also often exists in the, in, the, in the Christian church, a polarity that is two major extremes, um, and dangerous extremes, I would say. On the one hand, you have what many have called this triumphalistic, like idealistic view of what God does or can do in the here and now as normal. And on the other side of the spectrum, there is this kind of dark pessimism about God's not really at work or can't expect really him to do anything. And, and I find both in the church, and sometimes people drift back and forth between the two of this triumphalism and this kind of defeatist spirit. Now, when I say triumphalism, um, what we're talking about is an in theological terms, it's an overrealized eschatology. That is, the fullness of what's to come has already been granted. And some people will believe that, that the fullness of the Spirit has been given, which the Spirit has indeed been given. But Paul tells us it's just a deposit, which is just a partial of what's to come. That um, the kingdom is fully present, and we can heal all diseases, and we should send demons packing into the hills, and through our faith and through our Christianity to exercise dominion over society. That is more of a triumphalistic kind of view. And when we fail, according to that view, to see visible power at work, Christian power, gospel power at work in the world, exercising dominion, well then, the problem is not with the power, it's with our faith. Now there's a truth in there, and that is God is triumphing over, triumphing over is, uh, evil through his people. Paul, in fact, is going to tell us in chapter 2 of this amazing book that he's leading us in pri triumphal procession. But that triumph over evil is neither sensational, spectacular, uh, dominating, or, um, or expected. That is, God moves in power in ways we just don't expect. So there is a, a truth to God triumphing. It's just not in visible displays of power normally. On the other side, of course, there is this kind of pessimism that's in the church, this almost defeatist mentality, and I think it mostly rises from experience. People look at the church out there and say, well, you know, the church is just compromised. Where's the power of God? Where's the power of the gospel? Or they look inward into their own life and they're like, I'm not changing. I'm still struggling with the same stuff I've always struggled with. Therefore, God's gospel isn't powerful enough to change me. It's kind of a, like a, a defeatist mentality. It's a, it is what it is. It's not going to change. And oftentimes people will stay in the church because at some level they believe it. They just don't really believe it. So you have these two poles, and I just want to be clear, what I'm talking about is not personality uh, traits, like, well, there's the optimist and then there's the pessimist. Uh, I'm not talking about high goal setting versus low goal setting. Goals are good. Nor am I talking about 
um, youthful idealism. We're talking about settled belief on how we believe God works normally in the world we now live in. Let me say that again. That is, we're talking about settled beliefs on these two extremes about how God works normally in the here and now. And I believe this book, like, addresses uh, or takes us down the middle between these two polarities, this triumphalism on the one hand and the defeatism on the other hand. That is, it paints, and this is what's refreshing about it. Sometimes you read Paul and you're like, man, this guy's like almost superhuman like Jesus. But this letter, in my opinion, is the most transparent, open, honest, raw assessment of his ministry and how God works. And it has been refreshing to me because it reminds me that when things are hard and when things don't look like they're fruitful, it's okay. It's always been that way. For example, he writes this, this is just a little sample, we'll get to this later. He writes this in chapter 4. He says, we are afflicted in every way. (laughs) That's a lot of affliction. But, it doesn't allow that affliction to take him into a place of doubt. He says, but not crushed. You see that? That's not triumphalistic, nor is that this kind of defeatist mentality. We are perplexed, that is confused sometimes. This is the apostle saying sometimes we're just perplexed. We don't know what's going on. But, and this is, he's not driven to despair, persecuted, but we're not forsaken. You get the sense that he's not, this like everything's wonderful and hey, but we're going to storm the world with the gospel and take over the power structures of Rome? Never says that. Rather, he's afflicted, but he's not, he's not crushed. And then the last one, they're struck down, but hey, we're not destroyed. That is a pretty good summation of his ministry. And I think, honestly, for anybody who serves Christ in any capacity, whether it's Sunday school or maybe you serve in Boy Scouts as a Christian, just as a way of trying to reach people, you could say that there's times where it just feels like you're taking two steps forward and one step back, right? That you think you're bearing fruit, and then the fruit goes away. Like just the other day, I was thinking about in the, in the time I've had here, how many people have like just said, I don't believe this anymore. I accounted for people that I've had significant interaction with about the gospel that I thought these guys are solid people. Only to have them at some point go, I don't believe this anymore. I feel free. And I feel like, Oh, is it me? Am I the problem here? It's like, am I, am I, am I the rotten pastor that's not good at mentoring people? It's like you just see that kind of thing. And it can be very discouraging, disappointing. And I'm not just talking about pastoral ministry. I'm talking about serving Christ at any level. It could be serving Jesus as a good parent. You can have a triumphalistic view of parenting saying, my kids are never going to sin. <laughs> and then when they do, then your world is rocked. It's like, No, it is messy. Life is messy. Life is painful. Sometimes you see the fruit, sometimes you don't. And how? How do you keep going in a way that doesn't take you to either one of those poles or back and forth? And mind you, another interesting little detail, right? The church in Corinth, this is like like the church in Fairfield, the church that he's writing to, um, he founded. He, He planted 
He nurtured, he cared, he spent um, a year and a half there and then came back a number of times. And the very church he planted, if you read both letters, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you realize some segment of the church had become critical of his integrity, of his speaking, some suggesting he wasn't even an apostle. Now, you can't tell me that wouldn't be hurtful. Hurtful. The very church you plant turns on you. So, which is part of why this, this, this book is so transparent and raw. But you get to see a man who, while avoiding being triumphalistic, is still hopeful and encouraged. So how, is the question, as we come to this very first section, how, how do we stay encouraged when normally God doesn't work through these massive displays of power? How do we see, how, how, how do we keep going? That's the question. And the answer to that boils down to one word, and that is comfort. You're like, what? Comfort? Let me explain what I mean in a a moment. But that word is used ten times in verses three through seven. Ten times, comfort, 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 comfort. And it's found within another cluster of words that have to do with pain. Affliction and suffering, affliction and suffering, over and over. So you have this comfort that's in the middle of this what we've come to understand is like the, the hard stuff of life that every one of us struggles with. So it's this comfort. And in verse 4, he tells us where it comes from. In verses 5 and following, he tells us how it comes to us. The first part focuses on who God is as the source. And the last part is how God dispenses it to us as his people. So those are kind of the two parts who God is, and what God does. The first part has to do with God as the source of this consolation or comfort. First part, and it's actually, he begins with worship, doesn't he? It's like worship is the fountainhead of the, 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 the spiritual life. It's where we find our strength and courage and all those things. So he starts by going to the source, and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That has, has been used over and over again, Ephesians 1 and 1 Peter chapter 1, as an introduction. But then he changes it up. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort. First part, just reminds you that God the Father is the architect or author of salvation. It accomplishes it through the Son so that every blessing that God is for us comes through Christ. That's the reminder. You hear Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That immediately brings to mind the gospel, the cross, and the resurrection. But then he points to two attributes of God as the father of mercies, he's merciful, and he is the God of all comfort. Like, this is part of the character of God. He's come to know and rely upon, and he's pointing us to in this opening chapter. Now, I just want to be honest, I don't really like the word comfort, because it, we use it with comfortable. <laughs> you think of pillows, duvets. Cozy fireplace, five-star hotel, someone maybe fanning you with some palm branches. <laughs> Comfortable. That's, that's not what he means. He's talking about a consolation, is another way of translating it, or an encouragement. That is a renewing of joyful strength within to keep going. And it comes to us in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the affliction, in the middle of the, the, the suffering. Or to use an analogy, 
my dad has gone through these phases where he's always 100% into what he does. So right now he loves whitewater canoeing, even though he's 83 years old. Um, before that, it was cross-country skiing. And before that, he was an avid runner. And he would drag me all over the place to run races with him. Not the long ones, but the shorter ones. And I think I was 10 years old when uh, he took me to this race on Angel Island. You ever got to Angel Island? It's pretty cool. Anyway, it's like a four and a half mile, I think, uh, course. 10 years old. And, um, and, you know, gun goes off and everybody starts like a bunch of packed mules, you know, trying to run. And here I am, 10 years old. My dad is really competitive. And here's I am, 10 years old. He's like, okay, just... I wasn't a runner. I think I got to mile three, and I, I started to really slow down. I lost all my energy. And finally, heading towards the, the finish line, you know, just out of gas. And I didn't want to run it anyway, and I see my dad. He had crossed the finish line, went through the chute and all that stuff, circled back around, ran almost a mile back. And I see him coming. He goes, come on, Danny, let's go. Let's pick this up. And immediately, with my dad running right next to me, the pace picked up, and we ended up sprinting to the end. Not a whole mile. It was probably the last couple hundred yards that I sprinted. And I got to the end, he says, I'm proud of you. That is a picture of consolation, of encouragement, of comfort to keep going and to persevere. That's, that's what Paul says. This is, this is who God is for us. It's part of his character. It's, it's who he is for his children. It's, it's this, a characteristic of God to come and meet and console his children, that is you, in the midst of their affliction, as a mother would feel compelled to go to her child who just wrecked on her bike and skinned her knee and is now bawling her eyes out and say, get up off the ground and pick up yourself out from your bootstraps and stop crying. I, no mother would ever say that. I was being intentionally... Ironically facetious, but no, moms are impelled to pick them up and say, it's going to be okay. Dust you off, get you back on your feet. And what Paul is telling us in this opening verse, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. It all, ultimately for the Christian, has to come from him. And we look to him and trust that he's going to meet us in those moments when you're completely out of gas and feel like you can't take the next step, when you're heartbroken, or you don't know the future, and you're worried and you're anxious, where are you going to look? You can look to where the world looks. That is, you can drink too much, eat too much, shop too much, click on too many links too much, or which we all know leaves you less than before. It leaves you less of a person in a lower place. And he's saying, listen, remember, like the world and life and ministry and service to Jesus is the messy thing. You're not always going to see rainbows and puppy dog tails. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult. And who do you look to to keep you going? Your consolation, your encouragement, he's the Lord is. So that's the first part. That's the source of it. And that's where we have to look to. And we have to encourage each other. It's like when you're down, it's like, who are you looking to for comfort here? Who is going to be your consolation? What is the source of your encouragement to continue to follow Jesus, though people around you aren't anymore? The Lord. He goes on from here, from who God is, his character, to who 
what God does to bring us um, consolation and comfort. Paul says in verse 4, again, verse 3, if that's about the Lord, verse 4 is now how who he is connects with us. It says, who comforts us in all our affliction. You might want to, if you had your actual physical Bible, you could actually underline all. All. Or maybe you could, you know, highlight it on your phone. All. (laughs) You can tell I have a big of a bent, don't I? All our affliction, he's saying, listen, in, in all of my difficult moments, when my heart was broken, when I felt hurt by a church that's telling me I'm not an apostle and is criticizing my integrity, God has always been there. He's always met me in that affliction. All the afflictions is what he says. And, and he has the, uh, the experience to prove it, doesn't he? Okay, so later in this same book, he lists some of the things, some of his afflictions. And I don't think I've experienced even, well, maybe one, but just... Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less once. That's five times he's been beaten with lashes. I can't imagine what his back looked like, some kind of a Rambo freak or something. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. So, that's, so now he's, he's been beaten eight times. Once I was stoned, and that's not marijuana. That's actually stones. <laughs> Three times I was shipwrecked. Like, if, if this was me... And after one shipwreck, and then two shipwrecks, and then the third shipwreck, wouldn't you be saying, seriously, three times? Not just once. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. A particular fear of mine of floating in dark water, not knowing what's under you. Are you going to be eaten by a fish or a shark? On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers. And notice within this list, it's not all persecution. A danger from robbers is just like... A natural phenomenon in the, in the broken world where people steal from each other. It's just like this is just affliction that comes from simply being in a broken world. Um, robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In all those afflictions, he says... God comforted. That's the kind of confidence he had. That's the kind of confidence we can have that as we move through life, and sometimes you see fruit, and sometimes the fruit's real, and other times the fruit disappears. Where do we look for comfort? We look to God who comforts us in all our afflictions. The question, though, is how, again. How? How practically does God minister to us and enable us to um, to find comfort from him because he is a God who uses means, right? And so I'm going to offer two from the text. If I wanted to go big, there's systematic theology, I'd probably do like 15. But just give you two from the text of how God does it. That is how he uh, consoles and strengthens and encourages us. One has to do with Christ, one has to do with community. One has to do with Christ, the other has to do with community. And both of these have to do with a changing perspective on how you see your life and how you see the difficulties, pains, and afflictions and trials. 
Christ. If you look at verse 5, he tells us that there is a sharing that happens with Jesus as we experience pain. He says, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. This is what some have called the, the, our union with Christ, our connection with Christ. Like the New Testament it, it sees such a connection between the believer and Jesus, Jesus' life and the believer that we can say things like, I have been crucified with Christ. We, what? His death becomes your death. Your death is death. We've died in Christ. At the same time, the life I now live, it's, I don't live in the flesh, it's Christ's resurrection power at life in me. So there's a, such a connection between your life and Jesus' life that you're supposed to see it that way. And it becomes a means by which you come to know him more deeply. Now, I think both of those sides, the sharing and the sufferings, and, and if we do, we share in the comfort. Sufferings have to do with what it led up to, namely his death, and I think logically then the comfort has largely to do with the resurrection power and the hope of resurrection. But you have this connection, this shared, that, that is supposed to provide comfort for you. And like I said, this is a perspective. It's a perspective. We tend to think of, of uh, when you suffer or you experience a tribulation in your life, whatever it is, and there, there's, there, there's too many to enumerate related to family or marriage or, or work or a bad boss or somebody who slandered you or just your physical body's breaking down or your joints, sister doesn't like you, whatever. A lot of different possibilities. But we tend to see those painful things in isolation. That is, they almost seem like these hot potatoes that are randomly thrown into your life. Right? And you grab hold of it and you're like, I don't want this thing. Like, because that's, nobody wants to suffer. Nobody chooses to suffer. I don't want this thing. It feels like a random toss to you and you don't want it. That is, we see it without context, without perspective, and without faith. Here he, say, he alludes or t- teaches us that for as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort. Also, it's like this is a perspective on life. That as you experience difficulties, you're supposed to make an association with the sufferings of Jesus. Or let me put it this way. This is probably a bit of a stretch of an analogy, but hopefully it works. If it doesn't, you can throw it out. But it reminded me of of a memory I have with one of my closest friends. His name is Juan de Dios Hernandez. It's like a Mexican from Mexico City who still is one of my favorite, my, my closest confidant friends. Well, we were in college together. He happened to be a pianist, and he's a really good pianist. Um, like a master's from Yale and a doctorate from Arizona now. now. Back then, we were just sophomores, I think. And I had this really old truck. Everybody on campus knew me because of this truck. It was an International Scout, 1967. I loved it because it was, it was created the day I was born. Thing is, is that truck was heavy as an anchor. Like, it was almost 6,000 pounds, and those things aren't that big because it had a huge engine, and the whole thing was just, you know, the metal back then. You could, like, throw a baseball against it, it wouldn't dent. 
But I told Juan, my friend Juan Hernandez, I said, hey, and it was an El Nino year. It was raining outside. I said, hey, you want to go four-wheeling and get this thing in the mud? And he's like, yeah. I think he's, never, never mind. He's, and so we jumped in the truck. It was a moment of pure foolishness. I mean, who does that? I don't do that anymore. It's just completely turn your car into a mud bucket. That's all it does. Just, but it was fun back then, and we were trying to get away from doing homework, and so I took him out, and the ground was really soft. And I sunk like an anchor in the water. And this is no exaggeration. I, I sunk that truck up to the frame. Like, my differentials were buried underneath the mud. And we got out, and we were about a mile from school, and we had to walk home in the torrential downpour rain. And I remember just thinking, hey, man, I'm sorry. Sorry, I had to put you through this. Well, um, we actually had to wait. And I don't remember how long it was, a couple of days before the rain stopped, and it actually dried out enough to where you could actually dig, where it was solid enough to, you know. And my buddy Juan took a shovel with me and my shovel, and he spent hours and hours and hours digging that stupid truck out of the mud. I can't tell you how many hours, how many blisters. And by the time we were done, there was just, the blisters were breaking and there was blood. And he's a pianist. That was one of those moments where he became one of my best friends. Because we shared that together. And it bonded us together. And the thing is, is there's nothing that you go through or that I go through that Christ hasn't gone through. And to recognize that at any moment of pain, whatever it is, there is a way in which you can grow closer to understanding and knowing the sufferings of Jesus. It bonds you together deeply. I think most people who've gone through suffering and and continue to trust God through it know that in those times, you and Christ were close in a way that you didn't feel when there wasn't suffering. Because he was your consolation. You were sharing. He was sharing that with you. And I think that's what Paul has in mind when he says in Philippians 3. This is Paul's passion of his life. He's like, the one thing I want to do is I want to know Christ. Above all else, I just want to know Christ. And you know what comes next? And the power of his resurrection. That is, I want to experience the resurrection power in my heart as well as the future hope of it. But the next statement is equally Alarming, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Fellowship. Like just to think that Christ meets you in those moments and you're reminded of what he went through for you. And you connect to them, you share them together. It's, 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 it's powerful. And in that moment, the union that you share with Jesus is, is binding, it's deepening. You know, so if you're brokenhearted because someone walked away from the Lord, I just remember, okay, Jesus, you stood over Jerusalem and you said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks, but you were unwilling. A man in pain, a man grieving, a man in lament. And in those moments when you feel the heartbreak over someone walking away, he's been there and you know him better by way of experiencing it. So that's the first part. Again, part one is God is the source. That is the worship part, who he is. Part two happens to be what God does. Namely, how does he press comfort into us? One, Christ, our union with Christ. Sharing in the sufferings of Christ as well as the comfort, resurrection power of Christ. 
The second one has to do more horizontally with people, and that is repeated over and over and over again. You realize that Paul had a different perspective on his pain. He recognized that it served the purpose of the well-being and comfort of others. That's a different way of looking at pain, different way of looking at betrayal, different way of looking at abandonment. He says in verse 4, going backwards, who comforts us in our affliction so that, and here's the purpose. There's a purpose. God has a divine purpose in it. There is sovereignty in this. There's a reason why God brings things into your life. He's so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Any affliction. That tells us that this is not limited to persecution. This would include the normal sufferings of life and marriage and, and disease. And I would add also the affliction or suffering of our own doing. Sometimes we screw things up and we're in pain because of what we did. Sometimes it's sinful, sometimes it's just a bad choice. But he says right there in the middle of verse 4, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we were comforted in the middle of our adversity and now... We recognize that it's for the purpose of your comfort. It's a different way of seeing life, different way of seeing circumstances. It's like, it's not just about me. It's not just about you. It's about other people that God is going to use you for. But not just comfort. If you skip to verse 6, he says, if we are afflicted. Now, at this point, he's recognizing even the pain, not just the comfort in the pain, but the pain itself If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. It's like to recognize that the things going on in your life are bigger than you. They serve the well-being of the community around you. And you notice how intensely communal this is. This, This can't take place without community. It can't take place without believing family. It can't take place without a church family. Is the idea of an isolated Christian not in a family or a Christian not in a healthy believing church is about as foreign to Paul as like a a life without breath. It goes together. You can't live by yourself. So there's this communal aspect of things that people are going through in a church, both the comfort that they experience in the middle of it as well as the the pain itself is, is actually going to work out for the benefit of other people. You know, the, and that's, that's, the, that, that, that's, that's um, the unexpected part in how God works. We expect, you know, spiritual fighter jets to come in. And we expect these this grand displays of power. And, and there have been times in history, Great Awakens, when God does an exceptional work of power. Most of the time, he, he works through the ordinary pains and suffering and believing and trusting community of people as they trust in the Lord. It's not rocket science. It's just right here. It's God using affliction and suffering. It, it shouldn't be strange to us. I mean, it's just looking at life through the lens of the cross as Jesus lived, so we live. As Jesus lived, so we follow. So if Jesus suffered and then died to bring salvation to others, then 
Paul is seeing his own life and the lives of the people in the church through the same lens. It's like, listen, in the same way that God used the suffering of Jesus to bring salvation to the world, God is going to use your suffering to bring comfort and healing and perhaps salvation to somebody next to you. Different way of looking at it, but it's a biblical way of looking at it and a healthy way for a Christian to look at it. That keeps you from going to that one end of the spectrum, that polarity I was talking about of kind of a defeatist mentality. God does some of his best work when things are the hardest. And we have to remember that. And allow him to use our story and some of the failures to benefit other people. Let me just finish this with two examples of what it could look like. Actually, let me back up. These are real-life examples of what it does look like. Two people I've gotten permission from. One, a family member. The second one, someone in this congregation. So, one of my family's most difficult, I'm talking about my mother and father and my grandmother and so forth up in Newcastle. One of the darkest times for us was watching a family member who made wrong choices from the time she was about 17, which led into this just just a dark, destructive valley of alcoholism, two broken marriages, and two 5150s in the hospital because of an attempt to commit suicide. And like I said, over three decades of this, and so hard for my family. There's, there's no way of measuring the emotional weight that that placed on my mom, I saw, on us. And at times you're just like, all right, Lord, this person once confessed, this person once believed, is it ever going to change? And after three and a half decades, you start to think it's never going to change. And then something happened about four years ago where this family member loved, came back to the Lord, or should I say the Lord drew her back. Um, And this long, dark story of 35 years that ends with her coming back to the Lord and now three and a half years sober. How has she, like, brought that painful valley into the present and I'll tell you how she did she didn't waste it now let me say this there's no excuse this isn't giving an excuse or license to make bad choices because that that'd be bad but once decisions become actions and become history it's part of God's providential work and it always has purpose so in her case you know what she shows up at AA every week not just for herself but to be a sponsor, to bring what she's learned and the pain she went through to help others and to tell others about the consolation that she has experienced by way of Jesus. And she's led people to the Lord because she knows while it was a wrong choice, it's not by accident. There are things in your life that you look at as as, uh, negatives, as liabilities, Own them for what they are, but use them for what God intends you to use them for, for the good of other people, 
so you can share your story and your pain and how God met you there. Another one was, a lot of you guys know Dan Mundy is a uh, contractor, and he's helped a lot of people in our church in times of need. But for whatever reason, things seem to happen to him. Like, and I get to hear the stories, and I hear some of them more than I can remember. But one in particular I'll never forget is that he had a massive skiing accident, a tragic one, years and years ago. Many of you remember that. He was in ICU for, for days and weren't sure what was going to happen. Concussion, broke ribs, broken arm, and he's a contractor. Like, this, this threatens his livelihood. Medical bills? And yet, he tells a story of how it was in those moments, in the dark moments in ICU, that God reached and changed him. And, and I hear him tell the story, and what I hear him telling is, God was faithful to me in the middle of one of, like, a nightmare. And you know what that does to people who hear that, especially if they're in a similar situation? It's like, all right, so God met you there. He'll meet me here. It's like that's witnessing to the faithfulness of God in the middle, middle of tragedy because there's a purpose for it. And I believe looking at life this way, especially when it comes to pain and suffering, it changes us from being this kind of, well, God's not at work. Like, this gospel's not powerful. It's like, listen, if I learn one thing from Paul is that God shows his power through weakness. And that is awesome news because most of us aren't strong. And God brings things into our life to help. So I, I pray that this uh, perspective from this comfort that God provides for us and the perspective on how he meets us through Christ and through each other will strengthen your faith and your hope in this new year. Lord, I just ask for that for every one of us. It's easy to hear but not listen. And we pray that we would listen to the text of Scripture to know that um, you are faithful to meet us in the moment of need to help, to console and also to encourage. In Jesus' name, amen.